You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For August 22nd, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As we have discussed previously on this show, most climate models, except a very few like the one we discussed in episode 74, assume that we will need some sort of carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS technology, to keep the world below 2 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels. But there are two major reasons to be skeptical about that. The first is that so far, CCS has proved to be too expensive to compete with wind and solar, which are already clean and need no carbon capture technology. And the second is that in order to overcome that price differential and make CCS profitable, there would need to be a binding price on carbon. But so far, the handful of attempts to put a price on carbon have failed, mainly because the market mechanisms that they used failed to maintain a price that was high enough to really be effective. The largest such market is in the European Union, but as we discussed with Claude Termas in episode 47, too many emissions allowances were issued, and instead of fetching around 40 euro per ton, which would have been an effective way to promote decarbonization, the market price fell and then collapsed along with other commodity prices in 2008 and languished around 5 or 10 euro for most of the following decade. But now the EU has a plan to fix its carbon trading market, and according to calculations by our guest in this episode, there is a reason to hope that the emissions trading surplus will be removed by 2023. But even so, he believes that the EU's carbon market will have to be tightened even more to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. Mark Lewis, who was our guest way back in Episode 6 of this podcast, is now the head of research and managing director at Carbon Tracker, the London-based think tank who first made the concept of stranded carbon assets a topic of serious discussion back in 2011. In his new role, Mark brings to bear his decades of experience as a financial analyst of global energy and environmental markets to really dig into the details of the European carbon market. I'm fairly sure you've never heard a discussion of it this detailed before, and it's truly a pleasure to have him back on the show. We'll also ask Mark about how the prospect of Brexit might affect the EU's emissions trading system, whether we'll even need carbon prices in the future given the falling costs of wind and solar, and about his outlook for carbon policy and action by the global asset managers. So you will definitely want to be sure to stick around and hear the entirety of this episode. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about a bold new pumped hydro proposal in California, a startling announcement about Japan's nuclear future, the damage that Anji's nuclear fleet is doing to its balance sheet, and finally, we'll look at an amazing new bid for offshore wind in the U.S. But first, our conversation with Mark Lewis, recorded July 24th, 2018. Let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome back, Mark, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. You know, actually, you're one of our very first guests on this show way back in episode six, nearly right. three years ago. Amazing. Absolutely. Remember Yeah, it. at the time you were at Kepler Chevreau following a lengthy career at Deutsche Bank, and you were about to hop over to Barclays, as I recall. That's right. And so you've been working in finance in areas related to energy and climate change for a long time. And I'd imagine there was actually less career risk and perhaps better compensation when you were working for a bank. So <laughs> why did you decide to join Carbon? tracker were there just not enough marks in that shop right right well it's a great question and uh, you're not the first one to ask me i guess there were a couple of push factors and a couple of pull factors i mean uh, in the us it's not yet an issue but the whole way here in europe that research from financial institutions is being distributed to investors is undergoing a huge revolution under this so-called mifid to regulation from the European Union. And what that means is research, which was previously distributed free at the point of delivery, now has to be paid for. And that is changing the way in which the investors in Europe interact with research analysts. Now, is that true on both the buy side and the sell side? Well, what it means is essentially buy side firms now, they are legally obliged to pay for all research that they receive at the point of delivery. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So what that means is obviously revenues are under pressure in the investment banking world for research. Sure. The interesting thing is it's creating lots of opportunity for alternative research outfits. And Carbon Tracker being an NGO actually does not have to charge for its research output. And that means we can actually interact with investors in a more free and flexible way than traditional finance houses can. So that was definitely one of the reasons. And I guess the other main reason was having done, as you say, a long stint on the sell side at two, three different shops over 20 years, I felt it was time, you know, to try something a little bit different and something where I could perhaps, where I'd be freer to think a bit more broadly because, you know, inevitably working in a bank, there are constraints on what you can say, however hard you try to operate as freely as possible. So it's a question of balance and all that and uh, very happy with the choice I made. Good. Well, they're very lucky to have you over there. Well, and, thank you know, you. I've admired Carbon Tracker, of course, since they started. So, you know, I think it's terrific that you're yeah. now part of that team. So, you know, I wanted to get you back on the show mainly to discuss your recent report titled Carbon Clampdown, Closing the Gap to Paris Compliant EU ETS, right. which is a very detailed analysis of how the European Emissions Trading System, EU ETS, might evolve and the effects that it might have on Europe's emissions. So, Let's just get us started. For those who may not be familiar with the ETS, you know, maybe you could briefly describe how it works. Sure. So in Europe, we've had an emissions trading scheme for heavy industry, energy intensive industry and utilities since 2005. The industries that are covered by the ETS, which is a classic cap and trade scheme, account for roughly 50% of all the greenhouse gas emissions in Europe. So it's a very considerable chunk of the overall pie of emissions in Europe. And clearly, you know, any kind of ETS is designed ultimately to put a price on CO2 by capping the amount that can be emitted in a given year and over a given trading period with the cap 
declining over time so that you reduce emissions in line with a given environmental target over time. In Europe, for example, today, we currently have an emissions reduction target for 2030 of 40% below 1990 levels. And given that the ETS, as I just said, accounts for 50% of the emissions on an EU-wide basis, but given also that the whole point of having an ETS is that you cover those industries where it's easiest to reduce emissions and where you can do it in an efficient, traded manner, the ETS actually has to reduce its emissions more quickly than the rest of the EU economy that is not covered by a trading scheme. So briefly, that's the way it works. So in other words, a cap on emissions, the supply of emissions allowances is capped and declines over time and demand then varies in real time as it would do for any other commodity in any other commodity market. Right. So in the US, we call that a cap and trade system. Right. But exactly. In the US, we never actually managed to implement one. So right. Right. <laughs> right. Now, lots of legislation in the Senate and the House that uh, yeah. never quite made it into reality. Many men tried and many men died. So, all right. Well, among those who follow climate policy, it's a well-known fact that the ETS has been a bit of a failure, though, for years in Europe. So why is that? Why has it been such a failure? Okay, well, this is really very simple. The main reason it's been a failure is precisely because in a cap-and-trade system where supply is fixed but demand varies, you always have the risk that if demand falls more quickly than the supply of allowances is falling, then you end up with an oversupply of allowances. And between 2005 and 2008, I mean, you had a first trading scheme, 2005 to 2007, which was really all about trial and error and learning by doing. And we had very high prices and then the price collapsed altogether. For the second period, which began in 2008, they tightened up some of the regulations and ironed out some of the glitches. But the problem was you still had no way of modulating supply in response to falling demand. So, of course, what happened was in the summer of 2008, when commodity prices were going through the roof and oil hit $147 a barrel, we had the all-time peak of CO2 prices in Europe where we hit just over 30 euros a ton. But then when the global financial crisis started to happen in August, September 2008, and global credit markets started to seize up, I mean, basically, you had a collapse in demand. It caused a recession in Europe mm. and many of the industries that had been allocated generous quotas of allowances because the expectation was that the European economy would continue growing at 2.5% a year in perpetuity, right. found all of a sudden that they were sitting on a glut of allowances and prices collapsed. Mm. And really, really, it's only been until nine months ago that prices have started to recover. But the good news is prices have been recovering extremely strongly mm. owing to the reform that we've recently had, which is going to create this new mechanism called the Market Stability Reserve. 
Gotcha. All right. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's just get a few data points up. So yeah. what was the price at before things crashed in 2008 and how far did they fall yeah. and, and how far has they come back? Sure. So we hit the all-time peak, 31 euros a tonne in July 2008. Eight months later, February 2009, we were trading at eight euros a tonne. So it, it lost 75% of its value in eight months. That's actually a very nice little analog for what happened to oil, isn't it? Right. Well, absolutely. It was very similar. The difference being, Chris, and this is the whole point, whereas in the oil market, you have a cartel that can step in and control supply, which is exactly what OPEC did when the price crashed. You didn't have any mechanism in the EU ETS until very recently that would allow the regulator to control supply. So basically, they carried on churning out the same amount of carbon allowances, distributing them every year, either via auction to the utilities or freely allocated to industry, whereas demand was much lower. So the glut just continued accumulating and prices recovered somewhat in the summer of 2011 after the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened with Fukushima was that the knock-on effect in Europe was that the Germans decided they wanted to get out of nuclear power. So literally within two months of Fukushima happening, Germany had closed down one-third of its nuclear capacity, which created a brief blip in carbon and power prices in Europe because the market thought, wow, well, you know, this is going to create more demand because CO2-free baseload nuclear power is going to have to be replaced by coal-fired power. And the summer of 2011, you did have a blip back up to 15 euros a tonne. But then what happened, of course, is we had the eurozone crisis, the Greek economic crisis, and that caused, again, a whole lot of concern about the market's ability to absorb supply recession fears again. So we've been in this oscillation, but mainly since late 2011, prices have been essentially below 10 euros a tonne for the last six years until the beginning of this year when prices went back into double figures. And we're currently trading today at 17.4 euros a tonne. That's the highest price for seven years. And European carbon allowances are the best performing energy commodity in the world over the last 12 months. If you go back 14 months, they're up now 300%. So they Fascinating. Are, yeah. But again, as in almost mirror form compared to the price of oil. Right. Well, absolutely. Only an even more staggering you know, recovery. By a much greater degree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, oil's yeah. not quite up 100% over the past year, and, right. or at least in Brent terms. Right. Interesting. So now a new mechanism you mentioned has been launched to fix the EU ETS called the Market Stability Reserve or MSR. So how does that work? Okay. So the Market Stability Reserve will start operating from January next year. And what it will do in order to reduce this oversupply of allowances, let me just give you some context on the oversupply before we jump into how the MSR will actually work. So if you think of the oil market and how much inventory is held globally compared with the annual level of demand, then it's about 15%. So, you know, global oil demand, if we say roughly global oil demand is close to 100 million barrels a day, global inventory held is about 15 million barrels a day. I mean, I don't have up to date numbers on that, but that's a rough. Yeah, that's the right ballpark. Yeah. Ballpark order of magnitude. In the European carbon market, at the moment, 
You have annual demand for emissions of about 1.7 billion tons, and you have an oversupply in the market of about 1.7 billion tons. So you have 100% of inventory versus annual demand、mm. currently out there, and、mm. that that tells you all you need to know about why the price has been so depressed.、Sure. Now. From January next year, the market stability reserve will start to remove from the market 24% of the outstanding surplus every year for the next five years. And the way it will be done, because the way allowances are distributed in the EU ETS is via one of two routes. So either you distribute allowances for free. Which is what happens with heavy industry who need to be protected from the risk of carbon leakage. So, if you're a steel manufacturer, a cement manufacturer, an oil refiner, pulp and paper manufacturer in Europe, obviously you face global competition, and your competitors, generally speaking, do not have any form of carbon price to worry about. So, Europe is very concerned about the risk of carbon leakage. Steel companies, cement companies, leaving Europe to go overseas and export steel and cement back into Europe. So, those industries still receive their CO2 allowances for free, and it's only the utilities currently who are paying for all of their allowances. So, the utilities have to. Bid for allowances in the market through an auction system, and what the market stability reserve will do every year is withhold from the auctions 24% of the outstanding market oversupply every year, as I say, for the next five years, and then after that, it will reduce the surplus at a rate of 12%, assuming. That the surplus is still over eight hundred and thirty-three million tons. In uh, fact, uh, let me the, let me just interrupt you sure, for a minute. Sure.、Uh, how do we define surplus? What's the、okay. oversupply, or against what baseline? Yeah, that's a great question. So the oversupply, very simply, is the difference between the amount of emissions that have been verified to date. In the EU ETS since 2008, because allowances have been bankable since 2008 from one trading period into another,、mm-hmm. versus the number of allowances that have been issued since 2008, and what you find is since 2008, emissions in the European trading scheme are 1.7 billion tons lower in aggregate than. The number of allowances that have been issued. So it's a very straightforward calculation for the European Commission to run every year. They just update the numbers by saying, "Okay, what was the level of emissions this year? How many allowances were distributed this year, either for free or via auction? And how does that change the current oversupply in the market?" The technical term that they're using for the oversupply is the total number of allowances in circulation, which is simply a way of saying this is the number of allowances currently in circulation in ex. Excess of the amount of emissions we've had since two thousand and eight. Interesting. So it's it's almost like a float. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well,、yeah. anyway, I interrupted you, but you were saying so we're reducing it by twenty four percent. Yeah. And then by twelve. Yeah. Right. So of course, what you have to realize is because that sounds well. Okay. That means they're going to get rid of the surplus very quickly. In fact, what will happen is once the surplus falls below. 
this figure of 833 million tons and don't ask me why they chose 833 million <laughs> you know you'd have to ask the uh, the byzantine inner workings of the european commission to know uh, why 833 was settled on but on the numbers we're working with the projections i've made on this in my modeling we think that will essentially mean that you get to the threshold where you cease to remove allowances from the market already by 2023 so okay. Of course, the important point to make here is you do not need the surplus to fall to zero for there to be price tension in the market. And that is because the utilities have a forward hedging requirement, which means every year they're buying on a rolling basis to hedge themselves three years forward in advance. Mm. So there is always a natural demand for the utilities to cover future power sales and that is what creates the price tension in the market but you do need that surplus to be well below the current level and i would say you know anything close to a billion tons you're going to get very significant price tension and that's essentially what we're seeing with the rally in prices you know that we've seen since january where prices have gone from let me put it this way. Prices were trading at four and a half euros a ton in May of last year. We're currently trading at 17 and a half. We think we're going a lot higher over the next couple of years. And even since January of this year, we've gone from eight euros a ton to 17 and a half. So it's up 100% already just since January and 300% since May last year. And that's because what we're beginning to see is financial speculators, financial players coming yeah. back into this market, right. right? I mean, this is a market that has natural buyers in the form of the compliance players who have to submit well, one buyers allowance of compulsion. I mean, mandatory buyers, Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you, as a financial speculator, anybody can buy these allowances. If you or I want to go into the market and buy them, we can do so. You know, this is a totally free and open traded market. And what's been really significant in the last 12 months, the last nine months in particular, has been the re-emergence of financial players in this market who can see that there is a massive supply squeeze coming from January of next year and want to be in on the action. So funny to think of it as an asset class, though, isn't it? Right. I mean, yeah. Well, that's exactly what it is. You yeah. know, when you create a legally binding trading system like this with allowances that can be freely traded, you create property rights. And that is what an sure. EUA uh, European allowance is. It's the right to emit one ton of CO2. Gotcha. All right. So about five years from now, then we'll have cleared through the oversupply, at least in theory, but the utilities are buying three years forward. So really, two years from now, we should see the indications in the market of you know, the oversupply going to zero. I mean, that would be reflected in the price for sure two years from now. Right, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And one other thing that's providing a very interesting and will become even more interesting over time demand boost to this market is that since 2012, aviation has been covered by the ETS as well. Now, mm. aviation is a small sector at the moment in this market because originally the EU wanted to include all flights entering and leaving the European Union. That is to say, you know, if Delta are flying between New York and Paris, all of the emissions from that flight would have been included in this scheme. British Airways are flying from London to Beijing, same thing. Mm. Of course, what happened was there was a political 
pushback from all the major countries outside Europe, the US, China, India, Russia, etc. And at the moment, the only flights covered by the scheme are intra-European flights. But the point about the air aviation sector is, not only does it have a structural deficit in the same way that the utilities do, that deficit is growing over time. Obviously, with utilities, you're going to see emissions falling over time in any case, because renewable technology is coming down in cost so dramatically that it's becoming the default new build of choice. For the aviation sector, there's no way of reducing their emissions in the short to medium term. People are working on much longer term technologies to reduce emissions in aviation. But certainly until 2030, I think we're just going to see emissions from aviation grow considerably as these cheap flights keep growing. They're ever more popular. So the aviation sector is going to provide a very important demand kicker to this market going forward because we see growth in aviation continuing very aggressively all the way out to 2030. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A proposal by the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power would spend $3 billion to equip the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River with pump storage capability by adding a pipeline and a pump station powered by solar and wind energy. Few details of the plan have been worked out yet, so we don't know the potential of the project in terms of storage capability, dispatchability, net power, or anything else really, but the plan has a completion date of 2028. Generally speaking, pumped hydro storage is the cheapest form of electricity storage and is quite flexible, so the plan could be a good idea, but I suspect it will be a year or more before we have enough information to judge it. Item 2. Those who have watched the twists and turns of TEPCO, Japan's electricity grid operator, since the tsunami and Fukushima nuclear meltdown in 2011 will probably find this as amazing as I do, but TEPCO appears to be finally throwing in the towel on restarting its nuclear plants and is pivoting to renewables. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.